Um, I, I do feel like uh, a prayer after that video should be like a meal prayer, like Franz is just throwing steaks around like we're not trying to beat the Baptist to lunch, like he has no sensitivity whatsoever. <clears throat> so uh, yes, uh, we, we love them and we're glad they're here and we love it when you are able to bless our partners uh, the way that you do at the end of every month, so thank you in advance for that. Um, if you are new here, my name is Jim and I'm one of the pastors here. Very nice to meet you. Um, like uh, Matt said over here, uh, just a bit ago, if you are visiting with us and you have any questions, you can go stop by the Welcome Center, which is out in the Commons area. And we have a team there who would love to serve you <clears throat> and help you in any way that they can. And hey, over there, Auditorium too. you guys, uh, uh, I hope you're having a lovely day so far. And if you're still out there joining us in online land, sincerest thanks for keeping up with the life of our church there. So however you are joining us, we believe that God is good and he's wise and he is faithful and that not just in us and in spite of us, but also through us, we believe that God is working and God is moving and he's doing things and it's a, a great joy to be a part of that here at Fellowship Greenville, especially this upcoming week. This is Holy Week and we want to remind you of our schedule next weekend. And you also need to RSVP for all of these pretty please because of reduced seating, et cetera, et cetera. So here we go. Good Friday, Friday night, shocker right there, 7 p.m. and that one will be streamed online. Saturday services, 4 and 6 p.m. not streamed online. Then next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, regular Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. And the 11 o'clock will be streamed online per usual. Slight problem, both Sunday services are already full, so thank you if you have already RSVP'd for all of that. But here's the deal, our Saturday services are the exact same, so if you can attend one of those, that would be awesome. And we want to try and make space for everybody, but we have to make decisions about Auditorium 2 and bands and seats and volunteers, etc. So if you could RSVP by the end of today, write a note, take a note on your phone right now, RSVP by the end of the day. That would be a tremendous help to us um, as we <clears throat> prepare for all the details for next weekend, trying to make it both welcoming and celebratory as we celebrate King Jesus. So thank you uh, in advance uh, for your patience with us as we <clears throat> juggle all the details <clears throat> of these things looking forward. Now the reason that we celebrate Holy Week is because of the Holy Week that happened 2,000 years ago. We have four biographies of Jesus in the Bible and they all want us to pay heightened attention to this purpose-giving, life-altering final week of Jesus' life. And how do I know that? Thanks for asking. <clears throat> because out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 70% of them, 70% cover just the last week of Jesus' life. And we have been studying this last week from John's perspective, and we will continue to do that today in John chapter 19, so if you want to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that would be good, great, wonderful, awesome. Please, thank you, take your time and hurry up. John chapter 19, we will get there in a few minutes. Now, before we take time to think a little bit more about Jesus' last moments and his death in John, uh, we're gonna go out on a little ledge here, and let's just take a few minutes, let's zoom way, way out, and this might not be why you came to church this morning, but let's just... Let's just think about um, death in general for a few minutes. Maybe about 16 months ago, uh, before the COVID craziness began, I got a text that um, my aging grandmother was there, that it would just be uh, a few more days for her. She hadn't really remembered anybody's name in a few years, <clears throat> and my mom was being 
super daughter to be patient and love her well in those days. But to our surprise and our gratitude, Ethel bounced back. I've called her Ethel for the past 15 years and she will, she will be Ethel forever for me. Ethel, all 89 pounds of her bounced right back, okay? So then about seven or eight months ago, Ethel got COVID. Now let me tell you something about Ethel. Ethel probably smoked a pack a day for 60 years. So when that met with COVID, we were like, certainly this is grandma's time. But Ethel is a war horse and Ethel beat COVID. Like <clears throat> she emerged victorious on the other side of that thing. And then earlier this week, I got a text from my mom that grandma was unresponsive and that now is her time. And so I'm trying to love my mom in this. This is a fragile season and fragile thing for my mom. And then I woke up the next morning to a text message, a picture of Ethel sipping a Coke like she owned the joint. Just like, I'm in charge here, back down, right? That, that was the picture I got. And if you know my grandma, that's especially funny. My grandma's especially uh, unique and wonderful and I love her, love her so much. And it, is, it really is funny. But then if I step back from it, it, it messes with my soul just a little bit because not just me, I mean, we all know this. Death has inevitability on its side. It has greater patience than all of us. Like death is not a multiple choice option. It, right now it casts a long shadow over grandma. And what do I need to do about that? Because I love her and I love my mom. But more than sweet old Ethel, Death, death, death casts a long shadow over all of us. And what do we need to do about that? Now, I know that, I know that talking about death can be a really fragile thing. Maybe um, it's only been a few recent years since you have lost somebody very close to you. And still, I'm talking about every day, not a day goes by when you don't think of them and you don't remember them and your heart's a little heavier that day. Or maybe, maybe you're not 32 anymore and you're starting to think about your own mortality just a little bit and what that might mean for your family and your friends. And it's weird to think about no matter who you are, even, even for followers of Jesus. We, we believe that because of his death, because Jesus' faith, death for us, now, that, now death is just this really awkward and scary hurdle that we have to jump as we go on to continued life with him. But still, it doesn't take, if we're honest, it doesn't take all of the heaviness, and weirdness and intensity out of death. And there are also, <clears throat> there are two more things about death, seemingly contradictory things about death that I want to consider for just a moment. <clears throat> On the one hand, I think we can over-sanitize death, like we can try to put a dress on it and sterilize it and disinfect it and maybe unnecessarily postpone it. And I am absolutely grateful for the miracle of modern medicine, but, but just think about it. It's still right now because we don't even like to talk about death. Like as Christians, we're supposed to be pro all of life and, and death is this curveball of seeming finality that we'll, we still don't know how to swing at sometimes. Like we still don't know what to do because with death, it's not an if question, it's a when question. So what we have to do is we just have to own it and we have to learn to talk about it somehow. Like if you're alive right now, that means you're going to die one day. That's just reality. One day you're going to stand before God. So on the one hand, we do need to learn to talk about death more normally, like we talk about other things. But on the other hand, I totally get why we don't want to talk about it. Death is the last in a long line of fears that we all face. Denise Inge writes that death is the final fear, 
as quiet as a cat's feet that sits in every human heart. And in a way, it fuels everything else we're scared of because it is the final and last fear. So there should be some trepidation and hesitation and reluctance to consider it well. I mean, we end up saying things like, I'm dead serious. Like it just sneaks its way into our vocabulary. And so when we fear anything, whether it's heights or public speaking or paying bills or belonging or addiction or people pleasing or failure or fear of losing control, no matter what you fear, when the brunt of those things is upon us, the fear of death lurks behind every single one of them. And in that great phobia, the fear of the unknown, its essence is most keenly felt when we ponder the fear of death. So what do we do? Quite often we, we like end up assigning meaning to somebody's death because of something that they did or something that they said. We, we hold this thing up that they did or said as the thing that gives meaning and purpose and value to their life. And oftentimes we look to somebody's last words and try to use them as some interpretive grid for understanding their whole life. Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all, right? <clears throat> Bob Marley's last words were, money can't buy life. You ready? This is a good one. Da Vinci's last words were, I have offended God and man because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Jane Austen's last words were, I want nothing but death. Karl Marx, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And true story, as he was headed to the bathroom, his fiance said to him, don't go to sleep in there. And Elvis said, okay, I won't. And that was it. F try to find meaning out of that, like the king on his throne. No, good luck, it's not happening. <clears throat> it's not gonna work, it's just not gonna happen. So last week, last week in Charlie's sermon, he compared and contrasted the last words of the Buddha with the last words of Jesus. The last words of Buddha are strive, do it, go, work hard, get it, strive without ceasing. And the last words of Jesus are, it is finished. And, and I don't think it's the move. I don't think it's wise to conjure up meaning from people's last words. But here's the deal. On the cross, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and saying. He fully intended for us to rethink his entire life in light of his death. He fully intended for us to rethink our lives in light of his death by meditating on the weight of his final words. So, how does Jesus' death give meaning and purpose? So how should we look to his final words and listen to them well as we live, all of us live daily in the shadow of death because here in the shadow, we're supposed to fear no evil, right? That's what the thing says, we're supposed to fear no evil. But you know what? Just be honest, it's hard, it's scary, it's tough. And it feels so backwards, <clears throat> but the claim of scripture is that Jesus' own death is somehow supposed to take the sting out of death for those who trust and follow him. So how in the world does that work? Does that mean that we'll always, always be confident when we think about how looming and near death is? How does that work when we face death-fueled fears every single day? How should we be rethinking all of these things when we look at the cross? Simply put, <clears throat> how does the cross invite us out of death and into Life. How at Jesus' death are we invited and wooed and welcomed into life? How does that work? That's our question for today that we need 
to consider, and we will be helped along in answering it by John chapter 19, verses 28 through 42. That's our passage today. John 19, verses 28 through 42. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pick up right with Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, and we're asking the question, how does this scene, how does this invite us out of death and into life? John 19, verse 28. Here we go. After this, And Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it up to his mouth and when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once There came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, in another scripture, it says, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night earlier, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, if you missed Charlie's message last week, you need to go listen to it. If you heard Charlie's message last week, you need to go re-listen to it. It was spot on, super, 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 super good, but it's also foundational for what we're thinking about today. Charlie concluded with John 19, 30, Jesus' last words from the cross, it is finished, which is only one single word in Greek. It's the word tetelestai. It means it is accomplished, it is done, it's the perfect tense. It has been completed, and I love Charlie's illustration of your mortgage being all the way totally paid off. That's a spot-on picture and illustration of Tetelestai. I'll never forget Josh Amos and I doing a sermon series in our student ministry in the spring of 2007, so 14 years ago, go team. We called it Famous Last Words, and the last message of the series was on this single Greek word and its significance, and so today we're going to do a version of that. We are going to use these last words of Jesus as the interpretive key to our passage and to his death and to our question about how uh, his death invites us into life. Here's, here's, Here's the fun thing. I actually believe that Jesus and John both want us to ponder these words in this way. 
The words, it is finished, these words, a single word in Greek, they are both, listen very carefully, these words are both wonderfully concrete, but also deliberately imprecise. Okay, I believe that. They demand exploration. So we have the verbal sense of the word, something's done, something's completed. Hey, what's the something? What is the it of it is finished? Think about it. If I just randomly walk up to you and go, hey, they had a great time last night. You'll be like, whoa, whoa, slow down, buddy, slow down. All you have to work with is a pronoun. English class, here we go. You have no antecedent. You have no prior reference to know who I'm talking about. <clears throat> it, could be, it could be anybody, but you're left to discover what I'm saying. And it's similar here with Jesus's final words. We know that something is completed. Something is accomplished, yet we're not told exactly what it is. But... <clears throat> If we're paying attention to our passage, if we're paying attention to John, and if we're paying attention to the whole Bible, we can understand the it of it is finished. And when we do, it will make the cross's invitation into life more compelling and more beautiful. So here's how this is going to go. Don't get too excited. I still have left a 10-point sermon. So uh, you guys are like, what? What? I really want to beat the Baptist lunch. Please, just, just give me. You're not a, come on, help me. Okay, look, look, look. 10-point sermon, and here's the 10 points. 10 points to talk about what is biblically meant by the it of it is finished. And here's what we're gonna do. Each one of these points will widen the lens with which we look at Jesus's death. And we'll start with a zoomed-in, up-close, narrow lens, and then we're gonna back up with each little point. Maybe you've heard me use this illustration. If you go to the Grand Canyon for the first time and you look at the Grand Canyon through a straw, that's good. You'll see what's pretty, but that's not the total way you're supposed to look at it. Then maybe you look at it through like a cardboard toilet paper roll and you keep backing up. Maybe then take a Starbucks cup, poke out the hole in the bottom. You get to see more the, the more you continue to widen the lens with which you see the thing, and maybe eventually you have to wear one of those dog cones, like, I don't know, have fun with the thing. <clears throat> and then finally, you get to see the whole panorama of grandeur and glory. So here's, here's what we're doing. That's what we're gonna do with It Is Finished. We're gonna start with an up-close and narrow lens, and then we're going to widen it. So 10-point <clears throat> sermon already 16 minutes in or something. So here we go. Let's, let's do this. Um, what was finished at the cross. Now, each one of these can be replaced with the word it. <clears throat> Number one, Jesus's death. Jesus's death. We'll start simple. <clears throat> this is the most narrow lens. Look, this is looking at majesty through a straw. This is what we're doing here. <clears throat> now, here's what I love. Even this simple thing right here challenges the way that we think about death. We think of death as instantaneous, the moment when the heart and brain and body all stop working, like we have sometimes made that reality, death, uh, we basically reduced it to a medical failure. But for Jesus, death was a process. Crucifixion was a process. It was a long and drawn out execution to shame you, to shame people who loved you. And in Jesus' case, shame people who believed in you. And Jesus is saying that the process of his death is done. It's over. And then he bowed his head. And how do I know this? Verse 34, look, one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and at once blood and water came out. Now, John writes with great imagery. You can go do it later. Look at 1 John 5. He uses the same language. Great imagery. But the most basic meaning of this is the meaning that the soldier meant. What did the soldier mean? He was making sure that Jesus was dead. So that's our singular individual first point, that the it means Jesus's own death. Number two, widen the lens just a little bit. 
Jesus' life, Jesus' life, Jesus' life was finished at the cross. Now, because we're in John, one of John's main points is that Jesus is fully God who became fully man and fully lived all the way to the end. His full humanity is felt even in his dying words. Look at verse 28, verse 28. Jesus, knowing that it was all finished, which is also the Greek word tetelestai, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This is Jesus speaking out of the moment, out of the fragility of his humanness. That's what his thirst is about. And the reality of Jesus' life, it matters big time theologically. Look, if he is not fully God and fully man, if he didn't live his entire life as one of us, he can't take into himself the wages of sin that you and I deserve. He can't do it. He can't, if he's not fully God and fully man, he can't serve as our substitute and our representative and stand in our place on the cross if he didn't live the life that he lived. So, it is finished is not just about the process of his death or crucifixion, but it's also about the entirety of his human life. (coughs) Number three, see, we're moving. This is not bad. This, okay, we got this, we got this. Number three, uh, this can be cardboard toilet paper roll if you want. Here we go. Number three, Jesus's, Ministry. Jesus' ministry was tetelestai. His ministry was tetelestai. So Jesus' life was not to prove an arbitrary and or random theological point like, look, God is man now. Is that the case? Yes. <clears throat> but that's not the whole point of Jesus' lived life. Jesus came bringing God's kingdom from heaven to earth. Jesus' ministry was the divine game plan to inaugurate God's future in the here and now by bringing salvation to bear on the brokenness of this world. This is why Jesus' ministry, this is why he came preaching and teaching and healing and serving. His ministry was his way of saying, hey, hey, when I go to put death to death on the cross, you should continue my ministry in the power of my death-conquering love. Isn't that what John himself is doing when he writes the Jesus biography? Isn't that what John the Apostle's doing? Isn't this book, John, responding to Jesus' invitation, right? John is risking his life under an oppressive political Roman regime to get the message of Jesus out. And watch, watch, watch. Isn't it so weird that when Jesus breathes his last and he hangs his head, John, look at what he does. And the guy stabs him with a spear. John shifts to the voice of a narrator. Look at verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So proof that Jesus' ministry is over is that John is now taking up the mantle of Jesus' ministry, which which is pretty great. But if you keep pressing, guess what? Now it's our job to attend to the unfinished task of living and sharing the finished work of Jesus. Now the ball is in our court. So, it is finished implies his death, his life, his ministry, and number four, it includes Jesus' fulfillment of scripture. (coughs) Jesus' fulfillment, fulfilling scripture. Look at verses 36 and 37. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is Exodus 12. Not one of his bones will be broken. And also another scripture, Zechariah. And they will look on him who they have pierced. This is the fulfillment of uh, Old Testament prophecy. <coughs> so, 
The actions of Jesus in his death and in his life and in his ministry hearken back to very specific pictures and promises that God gave his people hundreds of years before. And please note that these aren't vague promises like he'll die for you and he'll be a different kind of king. Those are true, yes, but these Old Testament texts foreshadow some of the precise details of Jesus' crucifixion and death. <clears throat> and if you keep studying, you'll, you'll soon learn very, very quickly that the New Testament writers understand the cross of Jesus as this unique event that the whole Old Testament is rushing towards in hope. The cross is not a sad interruption at the end of Jesus' life. Rather, it is a holy and solemn fulfillment of all life that came before Jesus. We even see this in his, in his little words, I thirst. It's fulfillment of scripture. And the immediate implication for us is, if you, hey, if you wanna know how the cross reverses the curse of death and its inevitability, you need to know your Bible, Right? If death plagues you, haunts you, and fear weighs you down, guess what? It's not gonna help if your Bible is dusty. But because of the cross, because of the death of Jesus at the cross, we can be shaken free from that a little bit because the cross is all about promise and fulfillment of the biblical story. Some of the weight of death that we feel is felt unnecessarily and knowing scripture and how it climaxes at Calvary can relieve us of that burden. Or, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, remember the gospel that I preached to you, that Christ was dead, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected in accordance with the scriptures. Number five, <clears throat> the it of it is finished is also talking about Jesus' work as the Passover lamb. Jesus' work as the Passover lamb. Now I get this from a few places. Verse 36 again, not one of his bones will be broken. That's from Exodus 12. That was the very first Passover. <clears throat> Israel was set free. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, putting it on the doorposts so that death would pass over them and they could go free. And here in verse 31, look at verse 31. It says in the middle of verse 31, <clears throat> that was a high Sabbath. So we don't know what that means because we're not Jewish people, so it's not just a regular Sabbath. <clears throat> this is a super Sabbath, and it's the Passover Sabbath. This is one of the most important days of the entire year for Jewish people. And the Sabbath started at sundown, right? Also, uh, because, <clears throat> because um, the first chapter of John also, also chimes in here. In John 1, John the Apostle has John the Baptist telling us, Behold the Lamb, behold the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here's what all this means. Jesus says the Passover Lamb means that he offers to us definitive freedom, lasting forever, definitive freedom and forgiveness, way greater than the freedom that they felt those many years ago when they left Egypt. Because he's the perfect, pure, wonderful, promised, appointed, anointed Passover lamb, he can offer and extend to us freedom. And here's what we do. We still try to find freedom elsewhere. We look for freedom in, in money and possessions. We look for freedom in power and politics. We look for freedom in knowing and being known. And look, hear me, none of those things are evil on their own. But if you try to look to those things to get ultimate freedom, or if you think you can do those things well enough and thorough enough that death won't find you and that you can hide from it, you are woefully mistaken and you belittle Jesus's gracious work for us on the cross. 
Maybe it's just still so repulsive to us deep in our souls to claim that there is freedom in this bloody and violent and gruesome death on a cross. But part of the disgust of the death is in part due to the ugliness of our own sin, which this underscores and highlights his great love for us and the great freedom offered to us in Jesus as the lamb. And this freedom cost him his own life. We live in a culture where we get this special kind of sense that there is a unique honor when death is voluntary or or, or on the behalf of another. Like, we know that. We think about uh, war heroes. We watch uh, movies or we read novels in which this main character gives their life so that other people can live. We, We have a visceral feeling deep inside that there is something gloriously noble about that. I remember the, uh, <clears throat> the classic lines from Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The witch knew the deep magic, <clears throat> but there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the beginning of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. So when Jesus dies, the freedom that comes rushing out of his sacrificial voluntary death for us is a freedom that starts to undo death and make it work against itself. Jesus' death as the Passover lamb is the beginning of death's great unraveling. And now all the anxiety and questions and phobias and other death-fueled fears start to get nervous. And now death's seeming certainty and finality are beginning to crouch and cower and doubt themselves, right? That's what's happening at Mount Calvary. Death itself is starting to work backwards. And this takes us to number six. The it of it is finished also means (coughs) Jesus's work as our high priest is done. It is Tetelestai. And this is important. A priest is someone who stands in the gap between God and people. And at Jesus' death, we see him carrying out his priesthood perfectly. Now, I could take 20 more minutes, which you don't want right now, probably. And I could go back to John 13 to 17 and prove this with the language in John. John 17 is usually called the high priestly prayer. But thankfully for us, uh, the writer of Hebrews encapsulates what we're talking about here in just a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two, look on the screens. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who held the power of death, that is the devil, and, look at it, and free those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself has been tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is saying that because Jesus faced death, he understands, he gets it. He is our perfect high priest. And a high priest empathizes and sympathizes with us in our Fears. Here's what, you, here's what you have to feel and see and get and know. Not just in your brain, but you have to get this deep as you can. Because he faced death, he knows all of your fears. He knows that it's scary. 
He knows that it's hard. <clears throat> he knows exactly what it's like to live in the shadow of death. Why would you not trust him? If he gets it, if he knows, if he understands, why would you not go, yes, please, Jesus, help me? He knows. He knows that when death crosses the horizon of your mind, he knows that you're scared because you have more questions than answers. He feels that deeply. And if death is our final fear, and it somehow feeds all of our other fears, this means, this is so good, this means that Jesus is not only present with us in our fears, and not only means that he understands them, but he, also, he actually understands our fears and temptations more than we do. He never caved to temptation. He never yielded to worry. So he has felt the most pressure that those things have to bring. <clears throat> and he came out the other side victorious every time and then willingly submitted himself to the cross. Guess what this means? God will usually give you more than you can handle, but God will never give you more than Jesus can handle. And that's what it means that he is our priest. Hey, that's really great. God will usually, if you're trying to do it on your own, good luck. He will usually give you more than you can handle. <clears throat> he will never give you more than the cross can handle. You know why? At the cross, Jesus understands. He gets it. He sympathizes. He empathizes. He is our great high priest. Look, look, look. Here, I'll just put it simple. simple. When you go to work tomorrow morning, <clears throat> when you wake up tomorrow morning, you look at your phone and the stuff that makes your body tense, that makes your heart beat, that makes your brain weigh down, the stuff that you freak out about, Jesus gets it. He's our great high priest. <clears throat> the cross means you are never alone in your temptation and in your fears. Isn't that good news, brothers and sisters? You're never alone. And, and Jesus' it is finished is his, watch this, undoing of the mechanics of death and how it haunts us. So now the function of fear and the despair of death have been faced completely by Jesus. And this is how death starts to lose its sting. This is how Jesus is our great high priest. So death, we still have to face it, but we no longer have to fear it. Why? Because it is finished. All right. <clears throat> what else does this mean? <clears throat> We're gonna speed it up. We're gonna do a little buy one, get one free round. Is that okay? Here we go. <clears throat> We're gonna do number seven and eight together. Here we go, number seven. Jesus is rescuing Jews into God's family. And number eight, Jesus is rescuing Gentiles into God's family. <clears throat> Remember, each one of these can be replaced with the it of it is finished. So all along, Israel was meant to be God's people for the world. But throughout the Old Testament, they became quite often really focused on themselves. And they neglected their divine vocation to welcome other nations. The Bible word for that is Gentiles. To welcome other nations into God's family. But then when Jesus dies, somehow his death is this watershed moment that proves his messiahship for faithful and trusting Jews, but his death is also simultaneously flinging wide open the door for all nations to come and be a part of God's family. As for the Jews, we have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They both prove this in verses 38 and following. So they were on this huge committee in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin, uh, lots of power in, in the area. But Joe and Nick, if you will, here's the deal. They were secretly trying to follow Jesus. They were, they were afraid of the Jewish backlash that they would get if the rest of the Sanhedrin found out, if they publicly admitted that, hey, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 38, look at verse 38, um, right in the middle. It specifically says that this was a fear of Joseph's. And then verse 39 reminds us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night previously. So he was, he was scared. 
But what you have to see is, oh, this is so good. The cross draws them out of fear and into faith and draws them out of darkness and into light. Even in the simple actions of them attending to the burial of Jesus, which is something that only family and friends did. They're, they're stepping out right here. <clears throat> now, as for Gentiles, look at the last words of verse 35. That you also may believe, that's us if we are Gentiles. John is writing to anybody who would ever read this, and that's me and you. And uh, And throughout John, we see that this believing of verse 35, this leads to eternal life. Not eternal death, eternal life. And so, oh, I love this, it's so good. At the cross, like Joseph and Nicodemus, believing draws us out of death and into life Jews and Gentiles alike. All that was required for Jew and Gentile to be rescued into God's family together, all that was required for that was completed at the cross. This has to be included in it is finished. Okay, almost there. Just a couple more. Uh, maybe we're at the dog cone now. Can we do that? Are we at the dog cone now? Um, we've, we've widened the lens. We looked at his death, his, his life, his ministry. We went back to the prophet Zechariah, back to um, Exodus, and we're almost at the widest lens. Number nine, Jesus' opening the door to rest is completed. Second to last wide lens. Jesus' opening the door to rest is completed. <clears throat> Now, this is where you need to uh, control X, cut and paste, and control V. Sorry, I have those memorized. Doot, 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 right there. You have to copy all of Charlie's sermon last week into right here and right now. When it says it is finished, it means, you ready? This is really tough to understand. It is finished. Um, it means it's done. Now, what, what about the it? That's what we're talking about. And right here, we're talking about everything required to live in right relationship with God. Now, do you know how long you and I spend beating our heads against a spiritual proverbial metaphorical wall going, God, please show up and and be pleased by me. Please like me. Please, God, look down here. Look, this is saying, it is finished. Just saying, the rest of it is finished is saying that, you know what? We can take a deep breath now. And this is for me personally. I don't have to go out and prove myself anymore. I don't have to go and defend myself anymore. Thank God, that's exhausting. I don't have to achieve anymore. I don't have to accomplish anymore. I don't have to do spiritual jumping jacks or calisthenics to get God's attention. Hey God, pay attention to me. Here's the deal. We can rest in the completed work of Jesus at the cross to make us right and keep us right with God. Thank God, right? It's so exhausting to try to do it on our own. Now, one of my absolute favorite ways to talk about this is from an author named Sammy Rhodes, and I love how he says this. He goes, hey, you don't have to take yourself too seriously because at the cross, Jesus takes you seriously. Isn't that so good? It's so liberating. Consider this. Consider the negative of it. If God, you ready? If God can love you any more than he does right now, John 3, 16 is a lie. The cross is a lie. The cross, though, says it is done, it is finished, it is completed. That you are perfectly loved. You are totally forgiven. You are irreversibly free. You are indelibly in the family. And if that's not cause for rest and for trust, then I don't know what is. Now, here's the deal. We might not experience this perfect rest and this perfect trust all the time and this perfect grace because we still give way to fear We don't depend on Jesus like we should. But if you look to the end of the book, if you look to Revelation, this same John 
sees a family from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, Jew and Gentile alike, and they're singing an eternal song about a crucified lamb. And that means that at the foot of Calvary, there is eternal, there is unending, there is unwavering, there is unceasing rest and grace and freedom, more than you could ever, ever fathom. And here's the deal, you can't find it anywhere else. If you try to, guess what you'll get? Strive without ceasing. But guess what you need? Rest without worrying. Guess what you need? It is finished. You're not gonna get to your deathbed one day and go, you know what? I should have been in more of a hurry. You're not gonna get to the end of your life and go, man, I should have just been, I should have been less patient. I should have been a little more hasty and impulsive, you know. I, throughout my life, I should have snapped a few more times at the people I love. That's what I should have done. No, in all of life, even, even in diligence and responsibility, there is always need for greater rest, greater trust, greater grace, and these things are found most purely and most infinitely in Jesus' death on our behalf. And I have to show you one cool thing. I can't not do it. So sorry. Go Bible nerds. Look at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, what's that? Thanks for asking. Preparation for the Sabbath. This is the one, this is the big, this is the super Sabbath. This is the one that started at sundown, uh, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Um, Now look how the passage ends. Go to verse 42. Verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, there it is again, since the tomb was closed, they laid it there. And guess what this means? Guys, this is fun. It means that just like God rested on the first Sabbath ever in Eden, so Jesus' own body rested on the Sabbath, supremely proving that death, his death, opens the door for an eternal rest of the new creation. Isn't that fun? And I can't not. Ha ha, sorry, Charlie. Look at the first line of next week. The first line, it says, this is why chapter 20 starts with now on the first day of the week hey guys a new creation has been opened up for us isn't that a delight and this rolls us up slowly but surely to number 10 so this is this is the lens that allows us to see the wide panorama of grandeur and majesty this this wide lens looks at the cross as the central event in all of human history when jesus said it is finished The it is also about Jesus' opening up the garden again. Jesus' opening up the garden again. Now, think, oh, think about what John is writing. This is not incidental or accidental. He's writing about a central tree, a tragic death, and a garden. Look at verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. So John wants our minds to go rushing back to the first page of the Bible. He's saying that the cross undoes the power of sin and death and makes a way back home for wayward rebels like us. This is what happened when Jesus said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Follow me, follow me, follow me. The first Adam and his wife fell because they wanted to be God. The second Adam is God and rescues his fallen bride. The first Adam's sin caused thorns to infest creation. The second Adam wore a crown of thorns and died for sin to reclaim creation. The first man caused the curse when he gave in to Satan. The second man bore the curse and triumphed over Satan. 
The first man came naked to a tree and led all his offspring astray. And the second man died naked on a tree and is leading all his offspring home. This is the wide lens. There is eternal life to be had at the cross of Christ. The central tree and the tragic death and the garden of John 19 opened the way up to the garden of Genesis one. And here is new creation, new Eden, new heavens, new earth, forever freedom, unstoppable joy, incomparable love. And if this is true, and next week proves that it is, then you don't have to be afraid anymore. Oh, you have little faith. Why are you filled with fear? Death has lost its sting and is now working backwards and against itself. In the cross of Jesus, we find the death of death. One thing I like about this sermon already is that I have not yet told you anything to do. We're just like, look at Jesus, look, look, right? Yeah, I'll clap to that, that's hard work to tell you what to do, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, John has something here. How do we respond to these 10? How, how should we respond as the cross daily and eternally invites us out of death and into life? Look at verse 35. That you also may believe. This is John's big word he keeps going back to again and again. <clears throat> this is not ascension to a couple of facts. This is an entire life lived. Yes, you can acknowledge your worries, but you have to trust Jesus, you have to cast yourself on his mercy and grace, knowing he's our high priest who understands. And like, we can go ahead and admit it now. Like, hey, I don't add up, but it's okay because Jesus does. And then we get to rest in that. Believing is resting and trusting. And now we get to learn the humble, lifelong art of relying on him and swearing allegiance to him alone. That is the belief that John keeps going back to again and again and again. So when we behold Jesus on the cross, and we hear him say it is finished, and we lean into that with belief, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and as we do, fear's strength starts to wane, and death's grip starts to loosen. Fellowship Greenville, fear no longer has any right to govern you or to enslave you, why? Because death has met its match in Jesus. And at the foot of the cross, <clears throat> and in these words, it is finished, we find endless grace. And so I hope you believe that this morning, and I hope the cross is glorious to you today. To close this in prayer, I'm going to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, take the things of Christ and show them to my soul. Through thee, may I daily learn more of his love and grace and compassion and faithfulness and beauty. Lead me to the cross and show me his wounds. May I there see my sin as the nails that transfixed him, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, and the spear that pierced him. Help me to find in his death, the reality and immensity of his love. Holy Spirit, open for me the wondrous volumes of truth in his, it is finished, 
increase my faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, satisfaction made, guilt done away, my debt paid, my sins forgiven, my person redeemed, my soul saved, my rest secured, hell vanquished, heaven open, and eternity made mine. Holy Spirit, deepen in me these saving lessons. Write them upon my heart that my days may be fear-quenching, sin-fleeing, and Christ-loving. Make these things so, Holy Spirit, for the upbuilding of Jesus' church and for the glory of his fame. Amen.